Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'm speaking with Lee Rainey, the co-author, along with Barry Wellman, of Networked, the new social operating system. Lee Rainey is director of the Pew Research Center's Internet and American Life Project and former managing editor of U.S. News and World Report. Barry Wellman is the S.D. Clark Professor of Sociology at the University of Toronto, where he directs NetLab. Lee Rainey, thanks so much for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks for having me, Chris. You know, when most people think about their social life, they tend to think about the groups they're in, their family, their job, their friends. Is there a better way to think about the people we interact with than to think of them in groups? There's a complementary way to think about them. Obviously, the most important people in folks' lives have been the same, the, the groups that you just ticked off, their family, their friends, their job mates, folks like that. But the argument that we're making in this book is that the way that people actually maneuver through their lives is through wider networks. And so there is a whole other cast of act- actors in those networks who are also performing important social functions for people. There are acquaintances, there are distant acquaintances, and now in the digital age, there is a very distant audience that can be watching the social media postings of someone, even if they're not directly uh, related to that person or don't really even know that person, but they're still sort of involved in that person's network. So we're making the argument that the world has moved in the past several generations from a sort of tight-knit group network uh, to a more loosely knit series of networks where people have one set of acquaintances and friends for some purposes in their life and another set of acquaintances and friends for other purposes in their life. It's not locally based anymore, so it's not like a village where everybody knows everybody else's business. It's much more dispersed. And one of the big benefits that humans tend to get out of this set of relationships is that they have a little bit more liberation. When everybody isn't watching their business, they can um, maneuver through life a little bit more freely than their ancestors used to. But at the same time, they have to expend more effort than their ancestors used to to make sure that they get the help that they need. That's literally what networking means, that they are in active pursuit of the things that matter to them, emotional support, social support, sometimes economic support, health support, and things like that. Uh, the title of the book is Networked, but the subtitle is The New Social Operating System. So why should we think about this new version of networking as an operating system? Because it networking means operating in some respects. There are two ways that we're trying to play off a, a lovely computer notion in this. Obviously, we're making the argument that these more loose-knit networks um, are patched together for people in much the same way as maybe uh, the Internet is patched together for them or the operating system of their computer serves different functions for them. But it also means that they are um, thinking through and acting through a series of, of networking opportunities and networking events in their life as much as they are operating in sort of tight-knit friendship networks. People have to think hard about what they're going to share, what they're going to seek, how they're going to work in the world, and then activate the parts of their network that will serve those ends. And in the same way, people sit in other people's networks. And so the kinds of contacts that they get from other people who are 
acquaintances of theirs or friends of theirs or family members of theirs also are, have this sort of networked character. You don't necessarily share everything with everybody in your life. You don't necessarily depend on everyone in your life to meet certain needs. You, you depend on certain people to meet certain needs and other people to meet other needs. And you share certain information with, with different kinds of people. And so there's a way in which people literally are operating as they are thinking about getting things done in their life, getting their needs met. They are operating through a sort of new set of social structures that are built around networks. You know, this whole idea about social structures and networks, it kind of flies against the whole idea that, you know, one reads that the, the concern that with the internet and with social networking and with video games, it's always on, that social life is diminished. And I know that the Pew Internet Research has done some, you've done research on this. How has the nature of social life changed because of the internet? Are we less, do we bowl alone uh, more, as the famous book would say? Well, we bowled networked. Uh, we're not necessarily in leagues as much as our parents and our grandparents were, but bowling hasn't diminished as a, as a force in our culture and, and group engagement and group function, but it tends to be a little bit more ad hoc in character, and people have a little bit looser relationships with people in a series of networks that they sometimes jump into and jump out of as they have needs or as things arise in their life. It's a different kind of lifestyle from what people in bygone years went through where um, essentially people shared most everything with most everyone in their life and and most everyone knew about what was going on with them. It's a lot more loose-knit in the way that, that people are, are passing along information and sharing things. But one of the imperatives of this life is if you're going to live in a network, you have to make sure that the people who are observing you, both your friends and your acquaintances and even people in the outer rings of your audience in social media, you have to announce who you are and what you need. And so there is sort of a, an imperative in this new living system for people to share lots of things. And, and one of the arguments we make in the book is that a lot of the concern about too much sharing and too much information coming back to haunt people is balanced by this notion that, particularly with young people, that they get their needs met and there's a lot of advantages that come with being sort of out there and letting other people know what they're doing. That's the way they build friendships. That's the way they establish trust with people in the first place. That's the way they find groups that matter to them. So there are ways that this is a community building and personality building and network building activity that is a good thing that people are sharing, at least as far as they're concerned. It's, there's tension in it, of course, because there are ways in which all of this explicit sharing that people do, as well as some of the inadvertent things that they leave in, the, in their digital trails and their digital footprints, there are ways that that can, of course, be amassed by companies and by the government and by you know, even more casual observers to build a portrait of who they are and not necessarily an accurate portrait. So there are plenty of ways that there are new tensions in this environment, both in, in the explicit sharing that people do and as well as some of the more covert things that are just observed about them now. Could you talk a little bit about mobility? I mean, in some of your previous answers, you've alluded to the fact that the whole concept of distance, well, the famous France this Karen Cross idea that distance is dead. It's changed a little bit, and so we're not necessarily tied geographically to the units. But now that we have you know, mobile devices that are always on and we can be tracked geographically through GPS, how has that changed the nature of these networks? 
one of the things that Barry Wellman has seen and demonstrated for years is that um, people aren't necessarily locally bound in their networks. He, he has a wonderful phrase called, uh, they're glocal. They're, certainly some local ties matter a lot to people. They're, they're, their neighbors are, are consequential in their lives in certain ways, but they also sort of leap beyond their neighborhood and sometimes leap beyond their region and even their country by establishing other kinds of relationships, often in professional and business spheres, very often in in affinity spheres where it doesn't matter where somebody is if they share a, an aspect of lifestyle or share a medical condition or share a belief system with you it doesn't matter whether how close they live or not so there are the, there are ways now that both local and more distant relationships are sort of assumed to be a part of of folks social networks um as we look at this, one of the most interesting things that was happening in the earlier days of the Internet is that distance did matter less. People were finding others, and they were communicating with others, particularly through email, in ways where the, the place that someone was and the time of the engagement was, was less important because it was asynchronous communication to begin with. In the era now where people are carrying around uh, GPS chips in their pocket, locality and where they are is coming back into the story. We see that about 10% of Internet users use services like Foursquare and Gowalla and check in with places and check in with friends when they're somewhere. And about 10% of, of social network users uh, enable the function in Facebook or in Twitter to, to have their locality announced to their friends along with their tweets and their status updates. And so locality is coming back into the story because, again, sort of we're announcing where we are, at least to satellites and, um, and carrying towers. And, and so the, there, it'll be interesting to see how a sort of new equilibrium in this distance doesn't matter and distance does matter um, debate in people's lives, whether that, there is a new equilibrium that comes from this. Mobility also matters, too, because people can assemble uh, their networks and assemble information and reach out to people on the fly now uh, when it, when telecommunications is no longer place-based, you know, house to house or business to business and things like that. And when people can literally contact anyone else who's on the grid at the same moment they are, it gives people a different set of expectations about when folks are going to be available to you and whether they can serve your needs, when information is available to you. And the striking thing that we see in the way that, that mobility is now entering people's expectations is they just want their stuff when they want it. And, and again, that's added some tension to life because they like the part of it where they can reach out to other people or, or gather up information when they want it, but they don't necessarily like all the interruptions and distractions and come when other people want to take advantage of those same things and contact them. So basically, I'm hearing you say is with regarding networked individualism, this whole idea that you have to take the rough with the smooth, that you can't just have the positive without the other side of it. Yeah, and and so the people that want to frame this as the, you know the wire is good or the wire is bad or digital technology is netting out as a as a plus thing unalterably in people's lives or a minus thing unalterably in people's lives, there are there are tensions and there are are elements of both distress as well as delight that come with with this new lifestyle of networked individualism, and and so the, the framing of it as good and bad is doesn't necessarily help understand what's going on, we argue in the book that it's change. And some parts of it seem more important and useful to people, and some parts of it seem more distressing to people, and, and they do go hand in glove. 
we can't really talk about networking without talking about Facebook. And you know, it seems it seems Facebook's so ubiquitous now. I mean, we, uh, it's really good, funny to think five years ago, it really wasn't that big a player. You had Friendster, you had MySpace. Now we have Google Plus. But what is it that Facebook's done that separated them from their competition that makes them so? And like the word again is ubiquitous. Well, it's obviously built around relationships. It's not necessarily built around, uh, at least in the early days, wasn't built around selling things or or having commercial interventions be uh, an ex- a part of the exchange. And so it, it it was sort of strategically grown in a way that, that people first assembled their, their most intimate networks and then branched out to other networks. One of the things that it, this has done, of course, is that it has changed in some, to some degree the character of social networks in a, in a couple of directions. The first is it's segmented them more um, discreetly. I mean, there are ways now, not on Facebook necessarily, but when you begin to friend the friends of your friends or when you begin to find people who share the same belief system or share the same lifestyle or share the same passion that you do, all of a sudden, you're able to assemble quadrants of your network uh, that were harder to do in days when you, it wasn't nearly as easy to find people who share the same stuff that you did. So networks are becoming a bit more segmented now. And I would argue they're becoming a bit more layered. Uh, I've talked a little bit about this idea that there's an audience layer now that's part of social networks that's clearly um, an element of what Facebook has introduced to people's lifestyles. There are people out there who don't necessarily know you and you don't necessarily know them, but they're following you uh, or they uh, have found their pathway to you and become at least nominally a friend of yours. And there are ways in which those people can actually help folks. I mean, in our life at the Pew Internet Project, we have lots of people following us who uh, none of us know directly. But when we run into an issue or when we're tackling a new subject that we want to research, we often just throw it out to our followers and fans and say, how would you go after this? What questions do you think are most urgent to answer, most interesting to answer? And people that don't know us and people that we don't know are enormously uh, helpful contributors to our understanding of what's going on. I think there are minor versions of that that go on in lots of people's lives as they are um, uh, acting out and performing out in in Facebook. So their networks are more segmented now, partly thanks to Facebook. Certainly they're more layered now, thanks to Facebook. And arguably they're more diverse. I mean, there are more ways now that people can encounter folks who who have, have sort of different lifestyles, different uh, generational circumstances, different socioeconomic circumstances. It's not that people assemble lots of, of folks who are not quite like them in their networks, but we do see that diversity is tied to or at least associated with aggressive use of social networking sites. And there are tons of benefits that come from that. The more, the bigger your network is and the more diverse it is, there's a, a great amount of social science showing that you get a lot of good things out of that. So finally, how concerned are you that social networks of the future will be hampered by intellectual property issues? The whole closed garden, the whole walled garden metaphor. Yeah, there. Uh, it's just a. It's it's hard to know. And at the end of the book, we actually sketch out alternative scenarios. One where uh, the the processes, both intellectual uh, property and how it's fit into the system, as well as the, the technology affordances that are built into the system, that, that improve things, that, that, that people uh, are known better, that their services are maybe semantic services that, that figure out what they need and can help them plan their lives almost on the fly, and, and that serve them up uh, material that's useful to them, with doing so in a way that doesn't violate people's sense of, of what information is appropriate to share about them, doesn't violate 
violated in the sense of, of uh, insisting that people um, meet all the protocols of, of, of being inside the system. There's an alternative scenario where, where the companies are and governments and all sorts of powerful actors are insistent on property issues and insistent on the right way to, to be inside and outside the system and where um, there are all sorts of permissions that need to be granted before things can happen. And it's not entirely clear which scenario plays out. I mean, if you talk to folks in the, in the in, at least in the theoretical level in the technology community, they, they are very anxious to make sure that the new systems are, are systems that serve people and, and feel good uh, about it, but there are plenty of ways. I mean, here in Washington, as I sit here, there are tons of arguments about the nature of property and the nature of privacy and who controls what, and one of the great uncertainties about the future is how those things are going to come out. Lee Rainey, the co-author, along with Barry Wellman of Networked, the new social operating system. Thanks so much for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you, Chris. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at mitpress. This episode of the MIT Press podcast was engineered by Stephen Cray. Thanks for listening. Copyright 2012. The MIT Press. All rights reserved.